Let's pray one more time. Father, once again, we are grateful for your work. We've heard so much this morning, and we are aware that as our little ones have gone out, that your work is continuing. Father, we look to Joe's life, and we see that you sustained him. You worked in him through ages. I've heard your word read of the way that your gospel will move from generation to generation. And so for our little ones in the back now, Lord, we pray that they would hear the good news about Jesus, that it would be clear to them, that they would understand where they stand in relationship to this news that's being proclaimed to them. And we pray that their hearts would be soft. We pray that you would use today and next week and the next week and the next week to build them into the generation that will take our place. Father, we're grateful for the way that you're not just at work here, but you are at work in so many other sectors of the world. That in a world that belongs to you, we know how easy it is for our focus to become narrow. And so thank you for raising our eyes, Lord. We do pray for what's happening by way of persecution in Nepal. Lord, we pray for the spread of the gospel in the Mideast. We pray for the work that Holly will be uh, given to in Japan. And yet, Lord, while our eyes are there, we realize that some of the greater challenges come to our receptiveness to your word. It's easy for us to be impressed and distracted it's easy for us to be unaffected. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be transparent in this process, that your word, especially as we open up a new book, would be clear to us that the good news and the threat of finding fake news would be clear to us and that we would be eager, Lord, to follow you no matter what the cost. So, Father, I pray, soften our hearts, open our ears, and may we respond to the message that is better than anything else we could hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are freshly with us, we just finished a series in the, uh, the wisdom literature, which is not just Proverbs, but we spent time in Proverbs in Ecclesiastes, and then in the book of Job. For us, it was like a college course or a series of them where Proverbs gave us a lot of good ways to live. And then Ecclesiastes took us a step back and told us not to necessarily think that any of those were guarantees, that good principles don't necessarily make promises, and that there are a number of different things that are going to be out of our control. As much as we may hate that, it is, a, it is the world in which we live, and wisdom not only takes into account how to live one way, but also the fact that we can't guarantee anything in a world that seems kind of dangerous at times. And then came Job, where we got the most righteous guy, who was the most attacked guy, who really, at the end of the day, kind of buttoned up this series for us pretty well. So if you're interested in any of that, 
I'd encourage you to go online. You can look back at where we've come from as a church. But that's a little bit of an introduction for you to where we've been. We are opening up a new book. And so our hope is to find a new genre of scripture, the same message, the same hope that we just heard, which is that uh, as we open up the book of Galatians, that there is one message for us to believe. There is one God for us to trust. And yet things are going to be difficult. Galatians has soap opera elements to it. We're going to not get too far into this before we hear of a conflict between Peter and Paul and the way that Paul actually brags about the fact of how he, he engaged with it. We are going to hear the one letter, probably the first letter that Paul wrote. And one of the more interesting ways that he, as you just heard Mary read, uh, kind of uh, you know, gets to know people. I was getting to know some new friends and was introducing them to this book and said that in some ways Galatians is kind of like if, if you walked into a new church and somebody said, hi, it's good to see you. Uh, I have some critique. That's sort of the way that Paul sort of opens this letter. He hasn't written a lot of them yet. And he begins and starts to tell them all the stuff that he's kind of concerned about. In fact, so concerned that he makes some of the most harsh statements. This whole idea of booting angels out of the church, nothing in comparison to what he's going to say to come. Now, if you may be getting the flavor of it, as I encouraged you to read the book of Job, uh, and some of you took up the challenge, congratulations on that, I would encourage you to spend time in the book of Galatians. And let me just remind you, in one way, it's not going to be as daunting. It's Six chapters, and it's not as many as we were looking at in Job. At the same time, it's also a lot more engaging. It's a lot less uh, dramatically poetic. And yet, I will say that because this is God's word, and if we allow ourselves to sit under God's word, you may find it to be just as challenging. But I think this is a book we could read regularly because the initial reading of any, of any portion of scripture is always encouraging, and yet at the same time, it can be a little deceiving. Because if we understand what something says, we may think we've mastered it in the first or second reading. I have found in, in reading through this letter that it is in the successive reading of what Paul is saying that I realize how very little I understand, which may not be the best way for me to introduce myself as the one who's going to be preaching. Uh, but I just want to let you know, this is a challenging book. There also, not to dive too hard into it, uh, but there also represents in sectors of Christianity some massive debate around this one question. So let me give you the question. What is... The gospel. Now, that seems like something that we should be able to talk about. Sectors of Christianity, especially ours in the Reformed world, the evangelistic or the evangelical world, uh, they're talking about the gospel. I mean, the word evangelical comes from the Greek good news word. The word that's translated as gospel is one that we've actually built whole like quadrants of Christianity around. We want to be the people who believe the good news. We've talked about the gospel around here. Our tagline is a little different now, it, but our tagline as a church used to be celebrating, proclaiming, and living out the glorious gospel. But what is the gospel? Are you 
you're staring at me, but I hope that in this little silence, this awkward silence we have, you're trying to answer that question. What would you say is the gospel? Now, it's cheating to say it's good news. That's just the definition, all right? I'm not looking for the definition of gospel, but or nor the historical context. It was not uncommon in the Roman world of this day for a pronouncement to be made and the word gospel to be kind of thrown around. There would be good news proclaimed to a lot of people. Usually it would be about some king or emperor or something they'd done or they had a birthday or something like that. But it had to do with, so, so Paul's not inventing a word here, right? This may feel like a genre of music, gospel music, or a kind of church, or something along those lines. Christians have kind of taken this word, but when Paul used it, it was a really secular word, a really common word. It was just, hey, I have an announcement, a proclamation of something that's really good. But the question, 2,000 years after this was written, is what is it? What is that good news? Now, like the first of many themes, these first 10 verses of the book of Galatians are going to introduce some things to us and then revisit it over and over, which is why I say that rereading this book is really, really helpful because it's kind of like, like reading a novel where themes are kind of put out at the beginning and then revisited and you kind of almost in the successive sense of it, you're like, oh. Or if you enjoy a really good movie and you realize, I got to the end of that, wait a second, is that because this and is that because of that? Or wait, was that the same musical theme that they played here that they introduced this character? And it's, it's the, through the watching of a movie a couple times, unless you're one of those people who don't watch movies, you know, multiple times. Um, but it's sometimes through the, the re-ness of it, the re-reading, the re-meditating, the recalculating the message and asking, what is it that's going on? One of those themes that you will see and that you will hear resonate through this letter is this idea of good news. And if Paul wanted us to understand why this is a big deal, he, he wasn't going to wait very long, but it would be helpful for us to have a little bit of context about where Paul's coming from, probably. So it's good for us to look at a map. So here's a map. There we go. That's the one that you'd see in Google Earth, right? That is relatively the region, what we'd call the Mediterranean region. And uh, if you can, you know, read foreign languages there, you see Turkey, right? Turkey's kind of the region that we're talking about. When we talk about the area of Galatians, we're, we're in modern-day Turkey. So if we look at the biblical map of it, it's the exact same land, but here are some of the, the uh, sort of regions that are used. And here's why I show you the other one first, is because they talk about Asia and Asia Minor. That's one of the regions that's, that's sort of referred to in biblical terms. But if you think modern-day Asia, it's just going to mess you up entirely, all right? So we're in Turkey but what's often called um, Asia or Asia Minor is, uh, and, and so to locate us in Judea there um, and Syria and Asia, those are the spots we're really going to be thinking about because what happens as we read the book of Acts is that this gospel, this good news during all four of the gospels basically took place in this region that's, that's in Roman terms called Judea. It comes from the Jewish term of the tribe of Judah that had kind of morphed into the name Judea over time. And it's where the word Jews comes from. 
But essentially, most of the Old Testament stories, and particularly all of the Gospels, take place in a region around Judea. Jerusalem, uh, Samaria's kind of little uh, sector tucked in there. We think of Galilee. But, but that general region is what we would think of as the nation of Israel, now called Judea, all right? As the gospel spread and it went from being something that 12 people and their followers kind of believed to something that started to take over in Jerusalem. And then when persecution arrived for those who believed this and Pentecost took place and the number of followers of Jesus really began to spread and the spirit was poured out. When a little bit of a persecution bomb landed in Jerusalem, what it did wasn't to snuff things out, but actually to spread it out. And so these followers of Jesus, they left, just like it was predicted that would happen. The gospel spread from Jerusalem to uh, Judea and Samaria, which we would still kind of see down in that uh, Judea region, and then to all the regions of the earth. And so in the process of that, the, the obvious geographic and then racial point is this. You're going to find a lot of Jews in Judea. But you're not going to find as many Jews in Syria, Asia, Italia. You're going to find a lot more non-Jews or what the Bible would call Gentiles. So if, if this is new to you, I hope that this context isn't, uh, well, I hope it's helpful. Um, but there's one moment in the book of Acts. The first eight chapters really kind of deal with this question of who, who's this initial group that believes and what happens whenever they get persecuted. But as the gospel begins to be received, not just by people who've historically known their whole history in the Old Testament, but people who are learning about this and think, wow, I'd like to be a part of that. There were some, prior to Jesus, rules about how you could, as a non-Jew, start to believe in the God of the Old Testament. In, in earlier days, it would have involved things like circumcision and dietary laws, as, as some of that became a little bit more, you wanted to make it a little bit more public, uh, early on you see there's this guy who's baptizing people, right? That's kind of hard to know what exactly are we talking about there. Well, that ritual purification that John the baptizer is doing, that John the Baptist is doing, that Jesus is then a part of, and then it seems that some of his followers are baptizing people. That was sort of the way of taking something that would be private like circumcision and turning it a little bit more public. So there were things that you had to do, but the main point is this. In order to follow the God of the Old Testament, you needed to become Jewish, in order to be able to be saved. That's a simple way of saying it. If the, the Gentiles, the pagans, and the idolaters out there in the rest of the world were wanting to actually come to this God who they believed the message about and to have faith, there was a step that had to happen first. You needed to become Jewish. But when Jesus arrives, he starts doing things that really seem to kind of mess with those principles. He heals and commends people that absolutely are not Jewish. To, to one point, he's even taking a Roman centurion, one of the people who persecutes and occupies the land of Israel. The promised land is being occupied by the Romans, and Jesus goes and heals one of these guys. He, he commends his faith and then heals his son. Jesus is shifting the rules, it seems, a little bit. And then when you get to Acts chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12, 
one of the main Jewish leaders, a guy named Peter, has a vision. God puts a net down in a dream, and this net is filled with everything that Peter, as a good Jew, should never eat. And then the dream, God tells Peter, I want you to kill this stuff, and I want you to eat it. And a few times, Peter's kind of like, wait, God, what are you talking about? That's disgusting. I'm a good Jewish boy. I don't eat that bad Gentile kind of food. You've told us not, never to do that. And God responds and says, hey, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. And right as the dream's over, a guy shows up at Peter's door and says, we've heard about this stuff that's going on among you Jews, and we want to know more about it. Now, the... The indications that God was behind all this stuff with Peter could not have been more clear. Jesus died and was powerfully raised from the dead. Super clear. Jesus then, having uh, risen from the grave, told them, I want you to stay in Jerusalem for a while. And, and where Jesus died around one of the Old Testament feasts called Passover, they were going to wait for another feast that was always followed up called Pentecost. It was 50 days later, which is where the name came from. It was just part of their, their cycle, kind of like we think of Thanksgiving moving into Christmas. And, well, you know, once that Thanksgiving hits, you can just kind of forget all your plans because everything is just going to be crazy around that time. Passover to Pentecost was sort of the same thing. Jesus said, I want you guys to stick around here because something's going to take place. And it was on Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came down in a way that in the rest of the Old Testament, it seemed like that only happens over like tabernacles and over temples. God fills things with his visible presence and fire like on Mount Sinai. And that happens not at, to buildings or to mountains, but to people. And, and something different is happening. Well, when this guy shows up to Peter, who just remember had the dream, and he says, we want to hear. Peter goes and starts to pro proclaim the good news to this man. And in the same moment that he's talking to these Gentiles, something exactly like what happened to the Jews at Pentecost takes place now for Cornelius. He and his household experienced the same kind of Mount Sinai, the, the fire over the, the tabernacle, the glory of God filling the temple. It happens to them. And that's blown Peter's mind. Peter's had a dream from God. Peter's had an experience that other people haven't, where he did to the Gentiles what he did to the Jews. Peter's had those two moments take place and trust me, he still struggles with what it means that to follow Jesus doesn't mean you have to be Jewish. And Galatians is not the only book that's going to deal with this topic, but it's one of the significant ones. And so after Peter has that vision, to get back to our map there for a second, if you could, Jace, the little lights that are there kind of underneath Asia... That represents the first of what have been called in Acts 13 through 28, Paul's missionary journeys. Missionary journeys is one way of talking about it. Another way of talking about it is just calling them church planting trips. Because Paul was not just down at Judea when he got the idea, so to speak, to go and kind of be sent out to these different places. He was actually up into a spot up in Syria called Antioch. And there he had met another significant guy named Barnabas. Both Barnabas and Saul at that time, as he was called, uh, which, by the way, was probably just his first name, his Jewish name. 
Paul was probably his, his kind of Roman name, his Gentile name. Um, but he's, he's going by Saul at the time, and he and this other guy, Barnabas, are there. And as they're praying, they're just in a prayer meeting, and God says, hey, I want your best theologian and your most generous guy, your most encouraging guy. We're going to take them out of your church, and we're going to send them away. Which, by the way, is a moment that feels totally unfair to that church. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure that when those guys left, there was no replacement for Paul. And there was nobody else like Barnabas. The, the book of Acts kind of even tells their stories that way. God takes a church that from that point on we hear really nothing about in the rest of the book. doesn't mean God wasn't at work there. It just means they weren't central to the story anymore. The only thing we ever hear about this church is that God took their best and sent them away. Which I find kind of encouraging sometimes whenever I think about our own story. And I say, Lord, if that's the way you'll use us, if you'll take our best and our brightest and you'll send them overseas so that they leave and go study at seminary, we'll be okay. If you take them and send them to Japan, to Japan we'll be okay. But we won't have people like them again as they go. We'll be praying for Mary next week as well, by the way, just in case you guys didn't pick up on that. There's something about this church that I love because rather than their story being something of being resistant to this idea, instead it says they prayed for them and they sent them out. And they go to this little island out there and that kind of works a little bit. Then they hop up into this region. They kind of make their way across to the east and then they come back to the west and revisit these churches. But basically in every one of these cities, they start with some of the Jewish, the, the small little Jewish population. And then they go from there and start to preach out to the Gentiles. You can imagine that if somebody like Peter has trouble trying to understand this new dynamic of can the Gentiles actually be part of what God is doing without them first converting over to Judaism? If Peter, who had a dream, struggles with it, if Peter, who had the second Pentecost kind of witness moment, struggles with it, how do you think the Jews that live in all those little cities are going to feel? They're really having trouble with this idea. And so when Paul's done with that first missionary journey or church planting episode, and he kind of makes his way back and visit his, you know, visits his home base again, by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, this isn't a question we're guessing at. Oh, you wonder if these guys are going to have trouble? There's a massive problem. And all the powers that be in Christendom at that time need to gather in Jerusalem, and they have what's called the Jerusalem Council. Galatians is probably written right around that time. We're going to talk about this more next Sunday, but if you want to, you go to Acts chapter 15 and you can read that this next week. It might be something familiar to you, but it might not be bad to revisit as well. Because that council sets some of the same terms of the problem that this book is addressing. It's written not to kind of um, like Colossae is a city and they get a letter, the Colossian letter. Ephesus is a city, and the Ephesians get that letter. Galatia is, is one of the letters that we have titled to a state more than to a city. It's to a region. And so it's, it's right there. Oh, that's not there. There it is. It's right there under Asia. That's kind of the geographic region we're looking at. So if we went back to our Google map, you'd see it's kind of southern Turkey. That's, that's the spot we're talking about. All right? 
So with that context in view, we're going to look at three and try to explore three of these themes that kind of get started. And trust me, if you don't feel like we've wrung them all out today, that's okay, because there's going to be a lot to say. You will hear these themes again. The first theme, though, is that Paul is an apostle. Paul, an apostle, verse 1, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, he's going to go on and describe God the Father for a second, and he's going to talk about that. But the first thing that he wants to let you know is, hey, just so you guys are clear, you know who I was. That story that Darren just told Trinity Church, right? You know, that's me. I'm the Paul who visited you. I'm the Paul who with Barnabas, what kind of went through. I'm this guy who came and visited you guys, who dealt with the problems that we experienced there. And I'm the one who's writing this letter to you. But I want you to understand the nature of this letter. And I want you to understand first who I am. I am an apostle, which is a word that we don't use a lot. It, it basically translates out to sent ones. And as we think about it, we sometimes think of like kind of capital A apostles and then small a apostles. You'll notice this isn't capitalized because that's not exactly the terms translators were thinking in. But we think of apostles many times as those who write scripture, those who witnessed the, the resurrection of Jesus and who kind of penned out parts of the New Testament. That's not the way at this point in time Paul's using this word. Though he fits that category, that's not the way he's using this word here. He's writing a letter to his friends. And he's saying, I am Paul who was, to use the definition of the word apostle, I was sent. I was a sent one. I was the one sent from that church there in Syria. I'm the one who was identified during a time of prayer. And with Barnabas, we were sent to you. Here's the thing. If you think that the potency of this letter I'm about to write to you comes from the authority of the church in Syria, then maybe you'd want to think, oh, wait a second. This is Paul sent not from Syria, but from Jerusalem. Maybe we should get a more, you know, kind of substantial city. And kind of, you know, just like athletes want to move from less obscure cities to more popular cities because they think it makes them more significant and they don't want to be in Cleveland, but they want to go to Miami or Los Angeles or something like that. Antioch doesn't really feel like Jerusalem. So maybe Paul would want to say, hey, it's Paul, a sent one, but don't worry, it's not just that I came from that other little city that we're never going to hear anything about. I came from Jerusalem. But that's not actually where Paul wants to place his authority either. Paul says, I was a sent one, but actually I don't want you to trace my origins to any city or really to any of my history. I'm not sent to you either from men or through any one particular man. I want you to know that what I'm giving you is something that I have been sent to you to proclaim from God. This is a significant moment. In fact, we're going to hear more about this next week. But Paul, as an apostle, is bringing a message from God, and he wants them to know a few things that will introduce more themes about this God who is sending him. It says, first, I want you to know that this is our God who 
And he, he goes to speak about the father as the one who raised him from the dead. Now, there's nothing else he gives us by way of details. Remember, this is just the introduction. When we write a letter, we usually have some sort of love, sincerely, cordially, something along those lines, right? You think of Sound of Music and how is he going to finish out his little love letter to his lady. And she's bothered by how it goes. That's not the way these things work. Why? Because this isn't written on paper. It's written on a scroll. You open the thing up. You need to see who it's from. So the love from whatever, that comes right in the very beginning. Paul. Oh, this is from Paul. That way I don't have to open the whole thing up and figure out love at the end. I get the sense. This is Paul right in the very beginning. Paul not from Syria. Paul not from Jerusalem. Paul not from Antioch or from any other person. Paul from God. And here's the one thing I want to tell you about God right in the very beginning. He was the one who brought Jesus back to life. Jesus who was killed came back to life. The Father did that. That same Father sent me. Oof. Now, what do you need to know? Well, I've got some other brothers with me. I'm writing to all these churches. And I want you to receive, verse 3, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You would read this in pretty much any other letter. That's the way Paul starts. Paul to this church, grace and peace. Paul to this church, grace and peace. Paul to this church, grace and peace. And in the middle of that, rather than it just being something, it's another opportunity for Paul to tell us a little something that matters, even in the heading. It's like if I were to write to Christine and I were to end my letter saying, warmest regards formally in, in service of our King Darren. She might ask the question, what are you trying to say? That was a weird way for you to sign it. Paul's doing the exact same thing in the way he begins it. I want you to know this about the Father. He had the authority to raise Jesus from the dead. He used that authority and that power, and he's using that same authority and power to send me to you. Grace and peace from him and from Jesus. Here's the thing I want you to know about him, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, that's not just Paul's language. That's Paul quoting Jesus. Jesus, the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Paul would use that language as well when he's talking to Timothy. We have one, meter, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself to ransom us. Now, that's a purpose for his gift is to come as a ransom. But Paul uses the language a little bit differently. He says he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from what? A present evil age. Now that concept of us living under the authority, temporary or granted, however this has worked at the spiritual realm, we are very aware that we live under the oppressive tyranny and influence that Satan has over this world. There is an evilness to this age, and that was Jesus' language as well. He says we live under the taint, pain and the tyranny. Paul would reference this a number of different times. This evil age that we have isn't just 
evil. Like sometimes when I was kind of growing up, you think about the dark ages or you look at old photos or you see old movies and all the people in old movies, they just run really, really fast everywhere. It's like, why was Charlie Chaplin so excited? What's going on with him? And what was it like when the world was just black and white? I mean, it's a little weird, right? No, there was color going on. They just couldn't capture it in the photos. No, they didn't move that fast. That's just the way their old movies played back. Oh, oh, okay. I would have the same problem when I think of the Dark Ages. Like, wow, those people, it was just gray all the time. They just ate gruel, and they were always cold, and there were leeches and everything. It just sounds terrible to live in the Dark Ages, right? Because I just have this conception of what that would be like. Here's the problem with the present evil age. It's glorious. Our present evil age is the best time to live, the most comfortable way to live in the history of our planet. Our present evil age is not dark and gloomy and filled with gruel. It is glorious. It is comfortable. We are doing well. We complain when our air conditioner doesn't work in this building. And Nepal's asking, hey, could could we get a new building because ours is falling apart? And there's people who apparently might want to burn it down too. They're like, I don't know, it's getting a little stuffy in here. Now you're thinking about the air, but sorry about that. But you get the, you get the gist. We can't think of present evil age the way I think of dark ages or the way that we would think of different words that just kind of give us impressions of things. It is pleasant to live in this present evil age. The deception of the one who, if we're going to link him to the character in Job, wanted to make Job's life miserable because what he wanted to do was to test the allegiance of God. He uses a totally different tactic today, doesn't he? Just make them forget God because of how comfortable they are. Who needs to pray when you have an air conditioner and a refrigerator? Who needs to pray when you have a 401k? Why pray for daily bread when I just bought my month's supply of food? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Present evil age. But it is evil not because it is dark and uncomfortable. It is evil not because we are sitting in ash pits scraping sores off of us. It is evil because it is so prosperous and so deceptive. And Paul is pointing to that and saying he is active, theme we will hear in this book. And we must be redeemed from it. We must be ransomed and rescued from it. And this grace that God has given us is to make us less comfortable when Satan would make us more. It is grace and peace that would have us lift our eyes to what is unseen, rather than being content by what will pass away that we can currently enjoy. This is what we are called to be rescued from. It is the world you want to live in. Do you understand the terms of the battle? Paul wants to make perfectly clear that we get very uncomfortable in a world that makes us comfortable because it is presently evil. That is according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is not letting us get too far into this scroll by setting out some of the terms with which we are going to be familiar so we can read the rest of this rightly. He knows where he's been, and so far the journeys he's on and the journeys he's going to continue to take are going to be increasingly difficult. This is not some academic 
right? This isn't some you can't do, teach, you can't, you know, you can't be a missionary, right, Paul, just do some academic work. No, Paul has backed up and will back up with his life what it looks like to actually say we are in danger in this present evil age and he gave himself to deliver us from it. This is the Paul who's addressing us. First theme. Second thing we need to understand is that not only is Paul the apostle, he is Paul the astonished, to use his words in verse 6. I rarely like to be able to tell you what a person is feeling when they're reading because these are static words. Do I, as a, you know, my one-year seminary and Bible college education, have the ability to tell you exactly how Paul was feeling? Yes, because I find it very difficult to be able to read these words. I am astonished. Like, hey, I'm, I'm just astonished. Or I certainly wouldn't read it as, I'm so astonished. Oh, you're so cute, you little Galatians. It just perplexes me what's going on. If we can use a little sanctified imagination, I believe book shut. The thing is, I am unbelievably upset by the astonished nature of my soul. And here's why. Paul the Apostle to the church in Ephesus, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I am so thankful for you. Paul the Apostle to the church in Philippi, grace and peace from Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. I am so thankful for you. Paul the Apostle to the church in Colossae, I am so thankful for you. Paul the Apostle to the church in Corinth, where they're sleeping together and suing each other and ranking each other by spiritual gifts rather than maturity that's based on character. I'm so thankful for you. What? The Galatians got to be feeling like they're gypped. Now, maybe it's just that Paul's learned how to write a letter, but I don't think so. Because it's not just Paul writing. It is Paul the apostle writing from the authoritative and risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is looking at a church and says, hey, I am not thankful for you. I am astonished by you. Not you cute little Galatians. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I mean, not that there is one. I mean, what, what are you thinking? You're floating adrift in an ocean and dying and you got on a boat that saved you there's no other boat and you're jumping off the other side because you're like invisible boat and Paul's like there's no boat what are you doing there's no other message and this is not the only place Paul will say this and this is not the only time Paul will say this but this is the clearest thing Paul wants to get so that when we're scrolling out we're like Paul mm, okay he's coming from God well God's big oh no we are in so much trouble people uh, the reader of this the first time <laughs> Paul 
Do we have anyone else who's written a letter to the church that we could just warm up the crowd with a little bit here? Because I got to say, Paul, we love Paul, but all right, you guys want to hear this. <laughs> I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you. I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you by grace. And you're doing that. You're trading the real and the good for the fake, for the inferior. Now, again, we'd be reading in, we'd be, we'd be guessing here, but I'm going to guess that if we go back to the history of what's going on, and we'll learn more about this as well, there were people stirred up in Galatia, people who went down and told on Paul, they tattled on Paul in Jerusalem to Peter and to the other authorities, and we're like, do you know what he's doing? Well, a little I mean, it's not like I have Facebook or anything. But yeah, I'm getting general reports about what's going on with Paul here. The Gentiles are coming to Jesus, but they're not being Jews. Are we just going to throw away the whole Old Testament? And whoever these people are, they must have been significant. However they spoke, it must have been persuasive. With whatever authority they came, it must have maybe even like rivaled Paul's Oh, thank you, young lady. Dad's going to be up there spitting. We're going to have to take care of this problem. Because there are some who want to trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus. But that some probably needs like a capital S, some. There are some. Some significant ones. So let's just give you a test case. How significant would somebody have to be to make you give up what I already told you? How significant and influential, how winsome and attractive, how authoritative and persuasive would someone have to be in order to make you give up on everything that we just spent all of our time establishing? I'll give you the best one I can think of. If an angel from heaven comes and preaches to you contrary to a gospel that we preach to you, let him be accursed. We're kidding? Paul's like going after angels. I'm sorry, could you say that again? No, no, it's okay. Paul says it again. <laughs> I'm just going to keep reading. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now you have made him a little lower than heavenly beings. That is Old Testament scripture. So what has Paul done? He's taken anyone as lofty and as eloquent as they can be and said, we're going to take a whole new race. Angels, which we're all below right now, and I'm going to tell you this, no matter their authority, their glory, or whatever, if they distort this message, anathema, accursed, we pronounce it sometimes anathema, anathematized, to kick somebody out. Why? Because what has astonished me is, and I, 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 what he doesn't do here yet 
is diagnose the cause of what they've done. Like, what's the, I see the symptom. You've deserted a message and you've turned to another, a fake one at that. But, but, but I don't know why. I, I, I don't know why, but I don't care why. I don't care who. I will say this or we'll let R.C. Sproul say it this way. Let him be anathema. There is no stronger word in the Greek. Let him be damned. Let the curse of God come upon anyone who preaches in any it preaches any other gospel other than the one you heard from the apostles, even if it is an angel. If you're going to swear, usually let R.C. Sproul do it for you. That's my rule. But he continues. So if an angel in glorious light enters your church on Sunday morning to give you a new and improved gospel, you take him by the seat of his ethereal pants and you kick him out with a curse of God on his head. That's R.C. Sproul's interpretation of this word. And he's a better Greek scholar than we are. So we're going to, he was. And I, but I, I think he would still, with what he knows in the presence of God right now, say, yep, I, I got it about right. Why such a potent and powerful rebuke where every other letter has a warm welcome, even to the adulteress, even to the lawsuits, even to the Corinthians? They didn't get this. What we cannot do is say that the Corinthian or sorry the Galatians are a different category of Christian and praise God we're not in danger like they were. Just if you're new to us, that's not the way we try to read the Bible. Is as the Pharisees looking down their noses as the tax collectors. We're good at enough of that on our own. We try to rescue ourselves when we're in Scripture from that. Okay, so here we're not saying, "Oh, these stupid Galatians, Paul, I join you in your astonishment." Instead, we hear the active word, work of the Holy Spirit through his living word asking, is there an astonishing departure happening in our midst and in our hearts? Are we in the midst of a generation that is it presently evil but so persuasively comfortable that we're departing and not having known it? It's the analogy at the beach. You're there, you're playing, you're having fun, and you turn around and you're like, where is my towel? And you look and it's there. Yeah, what, what, what happened? I was playing in the beach for a while. I didn't move anywhere. And I got moved. I deserted my beach towel. How did I do that? Present evil current. Present evil tide. This presently comfortable and presently evil age is moving us from this message. And if we are not thinking about the ways that we are astonishingly deserting him or astonishingly turning to someone else, we are not going to read this book right. This Humble approach to this letter needs to be the way that we start and ask, not just questions of them historically, but questions of ourselves today. And 
I think questions of ourselves as a church. Where are we in danger of drift? And how can we reclaim a passion, a passion that if we're going to follow Paul would move us to say hard things at times, but also to receive hard things at times. I'll give you one more theme where Paul the Apostle is Paul the Astonished, but lastly is also Paul the Approved. Here's the first thing, if you're asking, why is this all academic and what does this really matter? You still need to ask the question, what's the gospel, by the way? And that's going to be your homework assignment for next week, all right? But look at the one moment that Paul visits for us just there in verse 10 that reminds us of how significantly a question like the gospel can motivate us. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that sounds a lot like the way that Jesus would talk at times, doesn't it? You can follow money, you follow God. Those are your options, but you don't get middle ground. As much as we today want to say, oh, this is such, you know, cute ways of thinking, but Paul, we've evolved beyond that. We've found a middle way to serve both God and money, and it's going to work out so well for us. Jesus would have said, no, that's not going to work. And Paul would say, yeah, the same thing work, doesn't work that way when you have your heart divided between who you really want to get approval from. The good news is we're going to revisit that theme later too. But apparently Paul thinks this is so significant that before we've unrolled the scroll too far, he wants, us to let, wants to let us know that one of the things that has helped him not to seek other people's approval is holding on to the gospel. Because he seems to put this out here as a consequence, right? You've drifted from the gospel. You've turned to something that doesn't exist. I got my feet underneath me, and you know what it does for me? <coughs> it frees me to serve Jesus because I don't have to please you. If you don't think that's a tactic to get him to keep reading the letter, where they just want to go, oh, Paul, you've offended us. He's like, yep, yes, I have. But I've done so in obedience to God because believing this message of grace is the only thing that keeps me stable in life. If I was going to be worried about what my former Pharisees thought of me, I would drift all over the place. If I had to be worried about writing letters so that I could gain your approval, I would drift all over the place. If I thought that how I was doing with God was reflected and you guys were like the thermometer so that if you like me, God likes me, whoa, I would be all over the place. How much of our motivation is all over the place? Joe, we were, we were talking about Joe's passing and I think Mike wrote it something like, He's probably up there talking somebody's ear off right now. And I, I think that's true. And what I love about thinking about Joe that way right now 
is that the best parts of Joe are there. And the worst parts of Joe are, are just gone. Don't you long for that? That the best parts of you would be perfected. Your personality remains. You still are who you are. But all the other stuff that taints you, that pulls at you, the, the weird things you feel about how you were raised, the, the terrible things that you know you've done that still linger over you, the, the stuff you just want nobody to ever find out about you, either like conceptually in big ways or the stuff that comes up in small little ways that you're always defending. And you look back and you're like, what's wrong with me? What is going on with me? This idea of what other people think of me, man, that's one of my top three. It is so hard for me to just see clearly. But frankly, the only thing that really anchors me on that path is this message. That a God who could do whatever he wanted saw me in my weakness and added grace and strength. He did so in such a way that cost him the life of his son. But then he approved so heavily of that payment that he brought him back to life and then sent redeemed sinners like Paul out on a message to tell other people about it. He could send the angels, but he sent Paul and us. So when I stand accused by my regrets and when the dempt devil roars his empty threats. When doubt and shame run over me like the arrows of the enemy, I will run again to what people think of me. I will reinvent my history. Why, Why do we do that? Because we've forgotten this one message. And Paul says, because of this message, I'm approved. So I love you, but I don't need yours. I'm not sure I've ever been able to say that 100% in my life. But I love the moments when I'm getting closer. I love the moments when other people sin against me and I don't sin back because I feel this sense of approval. I love that sense when we're talking about weakness in my life. And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Bring it on. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling here, but... But bring it on because I'm, I'm okay with him. And if I'm okay with him, then this doesn't have like eternal consequences. It's just how can I be a better apostle? And be, 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 I, you know, small how can I be sent out by God to the message that, and the mission that he's got me on? I don't want my life to betray that message anymore. Paul says it doesn't have to. I'll preach the gospel to myself. I'll run again to Calvary. And the good news is that's the place where we're ultimately going to park our hope in this book as well. So let's pray that God does that for us over the next four months. Lord, I'm grateful for this book, for your very strong introduction to our temptation to live for other people's approval. I thank you that this is not the only time we'll hear about this in this letter. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would even now Use your words back and ask you to search us, to know us, to see if there be any wayward way inside of us, and then to lead us 
in a way that's everlasting. Lord, anchor our souls to the message that you would have us believe that our king has come to rescue us from this present evil age. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing and declare these truths. You keep